story of psychology, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore, with your host, Professor Todd. Part One, The Ancients. By the year 410 AD, the first cracks began to appear in the seemingly eternal foundation of the Roman Empire. Barbarian tribes from northern Europe descended upon the city of Rome in waves, at first overwhelming the garrison towns at the edge of the empire, but eventually pressing toward the eternal city itself. The Visigoths from Germany raided towns and villages. The Vandals advanced to the Roman city walls. The Roman legions, assigned to protect the empire, abandoned their garrisons and withdrew to Rome to protect the city. Horrified Roman citizens stood by, watching helplessly as the invincible center of the empire was looted and burned. Meanwhile, the deserted Roman fortifications on the northern boundary of the empire were also under attack. With the Roman legion busy in Rome, farms and estates in Britain were newly vulnerable. Whereas southern Britain had been under Roman domination, the northern part of the island remained wild and unconquered. As the Roman legion pressed north in the first and second centuries, they encountered barbarians so fierce and ungovernable that it seemed pointless to try to conquer them. These tribes, from present-day Ireland and Scotland, were ruled by warrior chieftains who constantly skirmished with each other when they did not have an external enemy to fight. The people were savages, given to belligerence and fighting. They loved their weapons, and clung to both their religious traditions and their nationalistic pride. They distrusted education, preferring instead masculine displays of strength, hard drinking, and hunting. In battle, Irish warriors would decorate their faces with war paint and charge their enemies naked, wearing only sandals and carrying a sword. Beginning in 122 AD, the Roman Emperor Hadrian ordered the construction of a wall, halfway up and stretching across the entire island of Britain. This construction, known as Hadrian's Wall, limited access of the Irish to Roman Britain in the south. Now, however, by the early 400s, without Roman defenses, Irish warriors looted, burned, and killed Roman British citizens with impunity, often carrying children back to Ireland as slaves. A young boy named Patrick, the son of a wealthy Roman British landowner, was among the children captured by these Irish raiders. Born into a life of privilege as a Roman citizen in a wealthy family, his father a deacon, his grandfather a priest. 
young Patrick was ripped away from his family and eventually sold to one of the island's warrior chieftains. Left alone on the Irish hillsides to tend sheep, Patrick endured the hardships of slavery for six years. He wrote that his faith grew during his captivity and that he prayed daily. In a dream, Patrick was visited by God, who told him to run away. Patrick managed to escape across the Irish Sea and to the obvious delight of his parents. But something had changed for Patrick. He was restless, unable to calm himself, and visited by dreams of the Irish people. Now a devout young man, Patrick had another dream. This time the Irish people asked him with one voice to return to them and bring to them the word of God. In 432, after 12 years of study, Patrick returned to Ireland as a missionary bishop to spread the gospel among the Irish. Legends have since sprung up about Patrick. Most famously, and most falsely, he was said to have driven the snakes out of Ireland. The truth, in fact, is that there never were snakes in Ireland. It is said that he repurposed the shamrock, a three-leaf clover, which had long been a symbol of Irish pre-Christian worship, and had used the shamrock to explain the Trinity. In another legend, Patrick's dead ashwood walking stick grew into a living tree after Patrick thrust it into the ground at a particular town. So long it took the people of that town to come to Christianity that the stick had taken root in the meantime. Regardless of the legends, Patrick certainly influenced the island of Ireland to embrace Christianity. This is in part because of the foundation already established by the existing Celtic religion of Druidism. Druidism already emphasized the sacred number three, and the Irish Morrigan was a triple goddess of three persons. Celtic religion held to the immortality of the soul and a belief in resurrection and the afterlife. Patrick also presented the Irish with a benevolent rather than a punishing God, a God who created the world for the enjoyment of human beings and whose presence could be felt in the strength of heaven, light of sun, radiance of moon, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of wind, depth of sea, stability of earth, firmness of rock. And this is according to a prayer attributed to Patrick. Within a decade of Patrick's death around 461, Irish society was overwhelmingly Christian and being transformed into a society that would be unbelievable to the Roman legionnaires who had found these barbarians to be unconquerable. The incorrigible Irish were now becoming a society of monks. The spiritual heirs of Patrick 
started hundreds of monasteries all over the Irish countryside. Celtic Christianity also differed from European Christianity. In Ireland, the priests heard private confessions, unlike the Roman Christians who had to confess their sins before the entire congregation. The Celtic Church also refused to legislate private moral and social behavior, unlike European churches who intruded into all aspects of parishioners' private lives. Other Druidic or Celtic traditions live on in modern Christianity, such as the illumination of an evergreen tree, the burning of a Yule log, or the gathering of holly to celebrate Christmas, and the celebration of Samhain on October 31st, the night before the church holiday of All Saints' Day. But the Reformation of Patrick that would have the most lasting and transformative influence on Western culture, and ultimately on the formation of psychology, was the introduction of writing. Prior to Patrick, Ireland was an oral culture. All teaching, history, and religion was passed along through the oral tradition. Within a generation of Patrick's ministry, Irish monks were studying Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, becoming the world's finest scholars. The monks viewed work, prayer, and study as ways of worshiping God. Most of their work involved the translation and preservation of ancient books and manuscripts. Irish monasteries became centers of learning, and at the center of every monastery was the scriptorium, the place for the copying of manuscripts. This flourishing of writing and learning in the early 5th century in Ireland would be the source for Western knowledge of everything that had come before. You see, as the Irish monasteries were flourishing, the Western Roman Empire was crumbling. The barbarians at the gates were now within the city walls. Not only were cities looted and pillaged, but libraries were also destroyed. And yet, while the world and culture of ancient Greece that had shaped and built the Roman Empire was crumbling, hundreds of miles north, dedicated Irish scribes were busy copying and recording everything that would be preserved about the vanishing culture. It is not an exaggeration to say that almost every book we now possess written prior to the year 1000 AD, we possess because of the work of a few Irish monks toiling away in monasteries on this windswept island. This includes all of the Greco-Roman classics, from the pre-Socratics to Plato and Aristotle, ancient Greek and Hebrew copies of the Old and New Testaments, Josephus's stories of the Jewish wars and first-century Hebrew culture, all of the theological works, including the works of Augustine and the Church Fathers, everything that we rely upon to tell the stories of the ancient world, the history of Western culture, we have because of these Irish monks.
fall of Rome. The date for the fall of Rome is often placed at 410 AD, with the sack of Rome by the Visigoths. This was the first time in almost 800 years that Rome had fallen to an enemy. The Roman Empire itself, however, would hang on for another nearly 70 years, finally succumbing on September 4, 476, with the deposition and exile of the last Roman emperor, Romulus Augustus, by Odoacer, a Germanic chieftain and Goth. This, of course, marks the fall of the Western Roman Empire, and the empire that fell in 476 was merely a shell of its former glory. Some scholars suggest that the Roman Empire did not fall so much as it moved east. There, among the spires and the domes of a city named for the Christian emperor Constantine, a new empire was taking shape. This empire, centered at Constantinople, was the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantium. The Byzantine Empire flourished under the leadership of the Emperor Justinian and his beloved queen, Theodora. Justinian sponsored great public works and massive building projects, including Christianity's greatest church, the Hagia Sophia. Justinian and Theodora promoted the fortunes of the Monophysite religion and attempted to reconcile factions within the church. They were still debating the nature of Christ and the Trinity. Despite numerous church councils, this reconciliation was not to be. Neither would Justinian be able to again revive the fallen western half of the empire. Although Justinian reunited the empire again under his rule, following his death in 565, the west sank back under the control of warrior chieftains, and Europe entered into the time now known as the Medieval or Dark Ages. As Christian Europe sank into the Dark Ages, another religion was being born. 800 miles south of the Byzantine frontier, in the middle of the Arabian desert, in 610 AD, a plaintive cry rose above the wind and sand. La ila ila Allah. There is no God but God. The cry came from a 40-year-old man named Muhammad. Muhammad was born in 569 A.D. in Mecca, a merchant town near the Red Sea. His mother died when he was six, so he was raised first by his grandfather and later by his uncle. He was probably illiterate, but that was the reality for most Arabs of the time. At age 26, Muhammad married a wealthy widow, 14 years his senior. She would be his only wife until she died 26 years later. After that, he would have 10 more wives, 
but no living son. He and his first wife had a daughter, Fatima, who would become a significant character in Islamic history. She married Muhammad's adopted son, Ali. As Muhammad grew older, he became increasingly religious and sought to learn about Christianity and Judaism. Dissatisfied with the pagan traditions of his people, Muhammad began to meditate alone in the desert and in local caves. Yearning for something more, Muhammad wandered in the hills above Mecca. The land around Arabia was arid and only marginally able to sustain its population agriculturally. It was, however, positioned comfortably between the wealthy Byzantine Empire to its north and the untapped resources of Africa to its south, and later to the ocean routes to India and beyond. As such, Arabia managed to provide its people with the option of lucrative trade. One lonely night in 610 AD, Muhammad fell asleep in a cave. Tradition has it that the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him that he, Muhammad, would be the messenger of God. The voice said, quote, Proclaim the name of thy Lord and cherisher, who created man out of a mere clot of blood. Proclaim, for thy Lord is most bountiful, who imparted knowledge by means of the pen, and who has taught men what he did not know before. Quran 96, 1 through 5. Muhammad would have this experience repeatedly throughout the rest of his life. Each time, an angel would provide him with a lesson, a surah, which he was to commit to memory. These were eventually recorded and, after his death, collected into an Islamic holy book, the Quran. In the Quran, the name of God is Allah. Allah is the Arabic word meaning the God. It comes from the same root as the Hebrew word Elohim, and ultimately comes from the Canaanite word El, which referred to the father of all of the gods. Muhammad preached to the people of Mecca, but he was met with considerable opposition from the pagan leaders. When the threat of violence became clear, Muhammad left Mecca for the town of Medina, to which he had been invited with some 200 of his followers. Here he was much more successful. He eventually took over the secular authority of the town of Medina. Muhammad's relationship with the pagan families of Mecca continued to deteriorate. And his relations with the Jews of Medina, which at first were promising, deteriorated as well. An alliance between the Meccan families and the Medina Jews fought Muhammad's followers over the course of the next several years. In 630, Muhammad and his followers took Mecca. Within two more years, all of Arabia was under his control, and Islam was a force to be reckoned with. Muhammad died June 7, 632 AD. Muhammad's basic message was simple enough. We must accept Allah as the one and only God, and accept that Muhammad was his prophet. Say words to this effect three times, and you are a Muslim. 
The word Islam means surrender, meaning that we are saved only by faith. Allah, being all-knowing, knows in advance who will and who will not be saved. This idea, which we will see as Calvinist predestination among the Protestants in Europe, tends to encourage bravery in battle. But it also tends to lead a culture into the pessimistic acceptance of the status quo. But that would not happen to Islam for hundreds of years. The Quran says that someday, and only Allah knows when, the dead will rise and be reunited with their souls. At this time they will be judged. Some will be cast into one of the seven levels of hell. Some will be admitted into paradise, described in very physical and even hedonistic terms. Much of this heaven and hell scenario came from the Jews, who in turn got it from the Persians. Islam is very rule-oriented, blending the religious with the secular. Church and state are one. There is no separation of church and state in Islam. In the Quran, there are rules for marriage, commerce, politics, war, hygiene, very similar to the Jewish laws, which Muhammad imitated. Among these rules, Muslims are not to eat pork or dog meat and may not have sex during a woman's period, just like the Jews. Muhammad added a rule against alcohol. The society that Muhammad envisioned is approximated by such authoritarian states as Saudi Arabia and Iran today. Marriage was encouraged, and celibacy considered sinful. Polygamy was permitted within limits. Women, as in Judaism and Christianity, were clearly secondary to men, but were not to be considered property. They were equal to men in most legal and financial dealings, and divorce, while easy, was strongly discouraged. Likewise, although slavery was not condemned, many rules were designed to humanize the institution. Muhammad and the Muslims were generally accepting of Jews and Christians, collectively the people of the book, but were intolerant of pagans. War and capital punishment were clearly condoned and practiced by the prophet. Quote, and one who attacks you, attack him in like manner. The Arabic culture and language and the religion of Islam soon would dominate much of the world, from Spain and Morocco to Egypt and Palestine, to Persia and beyond. For a while, Islam would present a progressive, tolerant face, and Muslim philosophy would rival that of the ancient Greeks. The major split in Islam is that between the majority Sunnis and the minority Shiites. This split goes back to events in the 7th century. After Muhammad's death, leadership in the Islamic community passed to Abu Bakr, one of Muhammad's closest companions. Some in the community felt that this succession was not legitimate, and that the title of Caliph really belonged to Ali. Now, Ali's claim was supported by the fact that he was Muhammad's cousin, his adopted son, 
his first convert at the age of nine, and the husband of his daughter, Fatima. Both sides believed that Muhammad specifically designated their man. Supporters of Abu became the Sunnis. Supporters of Ali became the Shiites. The caliphate passed from Abu Bakr to Umar and from Umar to Uthman. Uthman at last passed the torch to Ali. When Ali was murdered in 661, the caliphate passed to Muawiyah, who would found the famous Umayyad Caliphate. Ali was buried in the city of Najaf in current-day Iraq. His burial site is commemorated by a shrine, the Imam Ali Mosque, which is still a major Shiite holy site. The regime of Saddam Hussein was dominated by Sunnis, and so the city of Najaf was always viewed by suspicion by the Hussein government. In August 2004, following the American invasion of Iraq, a fighting broke out in the city of Najaf, and the Mahdi army soldiers holed up in the shrine of Imam Ali. After three weeks of fighting and the Americans dropping four 2,000-pound bombs very close to the shrine, a ceasefire settlement was negotiated by a senior Iraqi cleric, the Grand Atollah Ali al-Sistani. The term Sunni refers to the Sunnas, an oral tradition and interpretation of the Quran. The Quran is a body of work similar to the Jewish Talmud. Sunnis believe that the position of the caliph should be a position to which one is elected by the religious leaders of the Islamic community, and not dependent upon a direct lineage from Muhammad. Caliph is a title for the head of state in an Islamic community that is ruled by Sharia law. This community is also called a caliphate. Shiite comes from the word Shia, which means the party of Ali. They are found mostly in Iran and Iraq and among the Palestinians. Shiites consider certain direct descendants of Ali, called the Imams, to be infallible and to be the true inheritors of Muhammad. Ali was the first Imam, with his son Hassan, the second Imam, and his second son Hussein, the third Imam. Ali's two sons were killed in the conflict with Caliph Muawiyah. However, their succession ended with the 12th Imam, who went into hiding in 940. Most Shiites believe that the 12th Imam will re-emerge someday as the Mahdi, or Messiah, and reassert his leadership in the Islamic world. In the meantime, Ayatollahs are elected to serve as caretakers for the faith. The Sunnis tend to be a bit more liberal, although certainly not by modern Western standards. The Sunnis keep their religion more simple than the Shiites. The Shiites tend to be a bit more intense about their religion and have a tradition of valuing martyrdom that came out of their early experiences of conflict with the Sunnis. Now, there are a number of splinter groups of both sects, Sunni and Shiite, and perhaps the most famous today is the Wahhabi sect. 
Wahhabis are a splinter group of the Sunnis, and this is the group of which Osama bin Laden is possibly a member. The Wahhabis are characterized by a radical fundamentalism. The Quran is not to be interpreted, but the Quran is to be taken literally. There are to be no prayers or other appeals to the prophets or saints or any other entity other than God. There are to be no images, no monuments to any supposed Islamic leaders, not even the elaborate tombs for famous Muslims. And the Quran is to be the source of both secular and religious law. Now, another famous group is the Sufi movement. Now, the Sufis can be either Sunni or Shiite. Sufis are mystics, and they believe that God's love shines through everything, even ugliness and evil, and that by attaining a certain state of mind, one can directly experience this. So in this sense, they resemble a Zen Buddhism. Sufism is also noted for its use of stories that have layered meanings, much like the parables of Jesus. One subgroup of the Sufis is the whirling dervishes. They are called the whirling dervishes due to their famous practice of whirling as part of a form of dakar, or remembrance of God. The term dervish commonly refers to an initiate of the Sufi path. The whirling is part of their formal sema ceremony and is a religious dance. And so, the religion of Islam would come to predominance in the fallen Eastern Roman Empire and would eventually spread its influence throughout the European continent. It would become the source of the greatest scientific and cultural advances that the world had ever known, far eclipsing the pathetic conditions of Western Europe at the time. But Islamic cultural growth would eventually be stopped abruptly with the ascendancy of religious fundamentalism that would not only hollow out Islam, but shake the foundations of Europe as well. <laughs>